where outcome criteria, either objective or applied, <laughs> applied. <clears throat> anyway, you smell toast. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. I'm your co-host, Alex Merkel. And I'm Josh Randles. And this is where evidence-based medicine meets unconventional warfare. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speaker's own, and nothing contained herein is to be considered the official opinion of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine or the U.S. government, including the Defense Health Agency, Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Navy, or Air Force. Hello again, this is Dan Godby, Medical Editor of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. Thank you for joining us for the Fall 2022 edition of the JSON Podcast. For this issue, I will mention a few articles worth reading that can, and maybe should, be read in conjunction with others. The article, Whole Blood Storage Temperature Investigation in Austere Environments, goes along well with the Operation Blood Rain Phase 2 article. The editorial on the present state of military physician leadership is good to read along with the article generating competent special operations clinicians. As always, we at the JSOM are always interested in hearing from our readership. Please send us your articles and we will do everything we can to work with you on getting your article to its best possible status. Now, here's Alex and Josh with the podcast. Well, Josh, another spin around the sun, transitioning from summer to fall, and uh, was really excited to recently have yet another reminder about how unimportant you and I are compared to the people who actually do the important work in this community. Um, I recently had the privilege of going in, in, I would say, helping in air quotes uh, (laughs) out in the uh, Intermountain West with some some great guys on an FTX, and they let me go play out in the field with them, um, which mostly meant trying really hard to not get in the way. And, you know, getting to watch our special operations medics in action, whether it's at the point of injury, their en route CASAVAC care, or even their prolonged casualty care at a safe house was just so, so impressive. And you guys uh, who I'm talking about, you know who you are. You guys are absolutely amazing. And it's a reminder that, as we all know well, um, us supporting AMED officers to special operations, we think we're really good at medicine and, and our special operations medics are good at some other things. But I would say after being reminded yet again by working with these guys that really, if it's outside the hospital, in my opinion, these guys are probably better than we are at just about everything, whether it's tactics, casualty care, evac coordination. Really, these guys are are truly subject matter experts, and it's humbling and really exciting to have the privilege of working for them and alongside them. My question to you, Alex, is did they give you uh, like a little plastic shovel and a little plastic like bucket to, to play with while they were doing the real person work or what did they make you sit in the corner? Like I just, these are important questions that we need to answer. Oh, you've been there. Haven't you? Yeah. You know, like they, they <laughs> considered giving me the red rubber rifle just like, so I couldn't hurt anybody else. And they're like, Hey doc, um, you might fall and like poke your eye out. I don't even think you can have that safely. <laughs> 
But uh, moving on to more important things, this edition is really fun. There is an intentional and pronounced focus on incorporating more female authors in this edition, and we proactively try to highlight that with our selection within the podcast here. We wanted to highlight the article, Women in Military's History, by Gretchen Garso Craig. She wrote a, a great article reviewing some of the towering figures of women in the military history to include even Harriet Tubman. So we'd all suggest that you go read that article and see just the contributions that women have provided to the U.S. military. Yeah, I very much enjoyed reading through this as um, all of us get more gray hair, we get more uh, interested in our history, and I thought that um, this author just did an outstanding job putting together just a wealth of data that was really fun to read and would highly encourage others out there to flip through it as well. In this edition, we are very excited to highlight a unusual submission for the podcast, and we're going to hand it over to corresponding author Ricky Ditzel. Welcome back, my friend. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It's good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And really happy that you helped put together this uh, paper that I think is um, quite important for our readership to, to be aware of. What uh, did you end up publishing this edition? Uh, along with a bunch of student veterans, and I got to give all credit to Chris Belair, who's now a fourth year Icon School of Medicine. Uh, this was his idea, and he brought together the team to write it. And our, we had a wonderful senior author, uh, Dr. Jacob Appel, who is a psychiatrist and bioethicist at Icon School of Medicine as well. So great team. Awesome to have a bunch of student veterans come together to write it. But we published a great paper about a, a wonderful woman, a hard charger, someone who really trailblazed the way for veteran education, and it's still relevant to today. So we were grateful to write about Edith Norse Rogers, uh, and we titled the paper, A Pioneer for Women, Military Veterans, and U.S. Medical Education. And uh, what were you guys able to find out through your research? What we found out is what we really wanted to highlight was the lack of support for higher education in the special operations community, especially medical education or what, you know, STEM, so science, technology, engineering, and math. And the average cost right now to go to medical school in the United States for MD, uh, I'm not sure on DO, is $300,000. And with GI Bill, which is fantastic, you're going to burn through that GI Bill just pursuing the graduate degree. You'll probably burn it up when you're undergraduate uh, programs. Uh, so we were looking to find out what's another way to extend that GI Bill. And what we found was this like I said, this wonderful human, Edith Norse Rogers, actually was the one who really helped develop the GI Bill. She really helped push legislature um, because of her experience coming back from World War One, her experience dealing with other veterans uh, coming back from war. And uh, in 2019, her legacy was honored that they were going to make this Edith Norse Rogers scholarship, which is a $30,000 scholarship per veteran to extend your GI Bill if you're pursuing STEM. And obviously medicine falls underneath that. And so what we found was by looking through archival information, either through the Veteran Affairs Department or the Congressional Archival Documents, we found that very few people are getting this scholarship even though they're applying for it. So just to give you some figures, in fiscal year 19, there was $25 million allotted for the scholarship. And of that $25 million, $0 were given out for the scholarship. And in fiscal year 20, $75 million were budgeted and only $18.4 million were given out in the scholarship. So 
what we found was that taxpayer money to support this really incredible scholarship for veterans is not being utilized and it's being rejected even though there's enough people applying for it. So you're looking at a really poor success rate of funding. And why we found this is incredibly important is because there's very few programs that exist. So to highlight a program that's really important for special operations medics uh, and other veterans is the West Virginia University School of Medicine Special Operations Medic Program, which is the SOMP program. Your point of contact for that is Lauren Walmsley. And that is a program that helps you with your medical school application, it helps you with interview prep, it gets you virtual shadowing opportunities, in-person shadowing opportunities, and they really have, I would say, not crazy standards to help you achieve your goal. You got to maintain a nice 3.5 GPA, you have to maintain a certain MCAT score, and then they're going to guarantee you an interview at, at WVU School of Medicine, which is really rare. And then the other program that exists is the um, Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra in Long Island, New York. Uh, which is also a special operations pipeline, which allows you to take the SAT and bearing that you have the correct SAT score with the right extracurriculars and GPA, you don't have to take the MCAT and you can go straight to Zucker, which is an incredible medical school as well, along with WVU. So what we really just wanted to highlight is that there's massive limitations for veterans pursuing higher education, specifically medical school, which has an insanely high cost. Uh, It has an insanely high barrier to access due to the application cycle costing so much money and on top of it the cost of of the education and i would love for everybody to read the paper it's not just about the money it's not just about the gaps if you read the paper you'll really learn about this amazing woman edith norse rogers she really pioneered the military especially education medicine and just took it for the rest of her career as a congresswoman and has done a lot for what we do today so i encourage you guys to read and check out and learn more about her well, thanks so much for that great summary. I do hope that folks head it over to their journal, either print or online edition, and thumb through your great article. And I know that with all of the outstanding work that you have done to support the community, she would be incredibly proud of your endeavors. And because you have very proudly shared that you recently did get into medical school, maybe you'd also be willing to share with the community some of the other resources that you have available for those uh, current or former special operations medics who are interested in pursuing their medical degree? Definitely. I would highlight uh, two programs. One is the Service to Schools MedVets group. That's ran by Pete Campbell, who's a second year at Icon School of Medicine, and Chris Belair, who's this, uh, you know the first author of this paper, is a fourth year. He's heavily involved with that program as well. And it's just this really great network of people all over the country trying to help each other with any questions regarding medicine and research. And then recently with Justin Anderson, who's a friend of the podcast and a friend of the journal, uh, we've been running a peer group mentorship program that we're kind of calling Soft to Psalm. Very selective. Uh, By selective, I mean you have to be within one year of applying to medical school. It's for very serious people only. What we're providing is uh, what I call data extraction. So turning that ribbon rack into your resume, aka your work and activity section of your medical school applications. We are talking to you about personal statement writing, how to break away from writing like an OER, NCOER, and become creative again, and really reflect because you're entering medicine. and It's a different style of writing and thinking. Uh, we also provide sense community. We have a nice little team room people can hang out in, just catch up and talk. And then we have some more serious group chats where we have MCAT prep tutoring available. 
it's peer reviewed, it's peer led. And then, like I said, we have the application prep uh, one where we literally have gone on Zoom calls with guys that prep them for interviews. We've gone on Zoom to talk to them about their essays. And it's been really successful. So about 32, 33 people deep right now. Of that, uh, our MCAT score average is around the 85th and 90th percentile of those people we've helped mentor, which is pretty high. We're really proud of that. And we have, for our first cycle of people applying, which is a small sample, so far 100% acceptance rate. I'm sure those guys would have gotten in without us, to be honest, but it's been nice to help them along their journey. So that's just uh, what we're working on. It's a really great group of people, and we're really enjoying doing it. But medical school only, and um, we're just going to stay there for now. Wonderful. Well, always a pleasure to catch up with you and thank you as always for the outstanding operational and strategic support that you have provided to our soldiers. All right. For our guest editor of this edition, we are very excited to have the privilege of Eric Dodson joining us to help with a article review. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, man. How's it going? Oh, great to have you. And um, for those folks outside your local community who may not be as familiar with your experience, can you tell us a little bit about um, where you've been in military medicine, what you're doing, and, and where you're hoping to go in the future? Yeah, absolutely. So I was a Navy corpsman for 11 years. Uh, the first six of those I did greenside with the Marines, and then I was fortunate enough the last five years to be an enabler for NSW. And just being there, I got to go to like flight paramedic, critical care medic class, the Mayo course, a whole bunch of other medical training. And from there, I was able to leverage that. And I'm finishing my undergrad and applying to medical school this cycle. Right on. Well, we'll be very excited to see you back out in the fleet in another, let's see, med school's four years. And then I'm assuming you're doing ER for another three years. Is that it? Exactly. Yeah, we'll look forward to seeing you in eight years when you come back up. <laughs> At least, yeah. <laughs> when you break the water surface again. Yeah, uh, right. right Start breathing again. <laughs> totally. <laughs> well, um, so let's get into your article this edition. So which paper are you going to be reviewing for us today? Yeah, I'm reviewing Active Warfighter Resilience, a descriptive analysis. It was a small case study that came out. Yeah, that sounds uh, directly applicable. So tell us a little bit about what were the gaps in literature and what were the clinical questions that the authors attempted to answer? So the authors came right out and said that there's no one true gold standard as far as resilience testing in the military. And even more, there's not any unanimity of scoring for resilience in SOF. The researchers aimed to compare common testing approaches and they wanted testing that covers a couple different metrics such as validity, consistency, reproducibility, and floor ceiling effects. It's a newer area of mental health research in the military and the authors were looking to test different means of quantifying resilience to see which of these was most applicable to SOF and what else they could develop from there. And so what methods did the authors use to analyze this clinical question? So using a sample size of 58 soft personnel between the Army and Air Force, they split them up into two categories being mid-career and career start. Both groups took three computer-based psychometric resilience tests, the Eager Resilience Scale, the Connor Davidson Resilience Scale, and the Response to Stressful Experience Scale, the RSS. They also obtained baseline well-being depression and anxiety metrics for comparison. They then used statistical analysis to compare the scores between career start, mid-career, as well as those scores with mental health symptoms, 
and number of self-reported MTBIs. All right, so now we get into the meat of their data. What did they end up finding? Bottom line up front, consistency measured between all the objective psychometrics suggests that the data is reliable. The findings were interesting. They opened up a lot of avenues for further research and questions. First, the positive correlation was found between the ER89 scores and mid-career SOF, which they thought might argue that more military service can increase resilience. This is achieved through learning resilience, coping skills, and from increased operational exposure to stress. Second, and arguably the most important, they reported no correlation between increased resilience metrics and mental health baseline scores. Essentially, what they're saying is that a higher resilience score does not correlate with better mental health scores. And then finally, they couldn't reject their null hypothesis regarding the number of self-reported MTBIs and resiliency outcomes, despite a couple previous research reports stating a negative association. Oh, man, that's a, a great analysis of what the authors put into this paper. And now, putting on your analysis hat, maybe you could give us three strengths of this paper? The most important strength, I think, is the internal consistency between all three of the tests. If the aim is to fully quantify resiliency in SOF, this is a great start to doing that. Second, it's important that they measure the scores against baseline health metrics, such as depression, anxiety, and well-being. And then finally, the questions that the paper did generate will allow for more research to follow up and gain much more reliable and long-term data. Well, since you just finished your biostatistics, you'd be a great person to help provide some insight about ways in which this paper might be improved and maybe provide some education to some of our other soft medics out there who don't have the educational background that you do. Yeah, I think having just taken biostats, the first thing I noticed was the small sample size, which they did acknowledge early on in the paper. I also think it would be prudent to define the different stages of career as opposed to career start versus mid-career soft. They're fairly subjective and they can have a variety of meanings as far as time and service as well as operational experience. I also think a control group would be beneficial to compare soft scores to conventional military scores. If the assertion is that soft scores are generally higher, a comparative analysis would have highlighted that effectively. All right. So again, from a objective research perspective, then what level of clinical evidence do you grade this paper as? So I gave it a 3B. Um, since they did do randomization, which is always key in any statistics class, and then the consistency between the statistical analysis, I think kind of gave it that extra bit of strength. Got it. And so do you think this study meets the requirements to change clinical practice? The evidence is strong, and it suggests that soft personnel by nature have better resiliency metrics. I think the most important part of the study is that it doesn't affect clinical practice as much as it emphasizes the need to pay attention to resiliency as a whole in military and in soft, as well as study it much more in depth. Being able to gauge this more active, accurately can improve long-term outcomes from stress response and operational experiences. Well, Eric, thanks so much. That was a fantastic analysis, and we really appreciate you taking the time and effort to share your knowledge with the wider community so that we all have a better baseline knowledge about this important research that can affect our practice and those uh, tip-of-the-spear service members that we serve. Thank you, Alex. I, I appreciate the chance to contribute in any way I can.
Wounded Warrior Project's mission is to transform the way America's injured veterans are empowered, employed, and engaged in our communities through a variety of free programs and services. One of those programs is Warrior Care Network, which aims to minimize the impact of mental health issues on everyday life. Through a partnership with four top academic medical centers around the country, participants receive a year's worth of evidence-based treatments with complementary alternative therapies during a two to three week intensive outpatient program. Please visit warriorcarenetwork.org to learn more. suffer from a lack of true crime podcasts in your inbox good news coming soon from breakaway media is the all-new jsom investigates new podcast from breakaway media jsom investigates seeks answers from some of the most heinous crimes committed in the team room Have you suffered the same fate as tens of thousands of soldiers going to the workout room and finding that someone didn't rack the weights? JSOM investigates. Have you gone to the fridge only to find that your wild tiger you placed there from 2009 is gone? JSOM investigates. Have you gone to dispatch a vehicle and found that its fuel tank is less than half full despite the requirement that every vehicle be filled? JSOM investigates. JSOM investigates. Coming early 2023. Uh, the views and opinions disclosed herein may or may not be based on actual fact or representation herein thereof. This is a fake podcast, you'll never have it. And our last article for review of this edition is Operation Blood Rain Phase 2, evaluating the effect of airdrop on fresh and stored whole blood with a cacophony of authors, uh, including first author Dr. Rosalind Clemente Fuentes, who we will be interviewing later on. So this is a follow-on second part of a previously performed and published study. And what the authors note is that transfusion of whole blood is a life-saving treatment that, as we all know, prolongs life until definitive surgical intervention can be performed. But collecting whole blood is time-consuming and resource-intensive. They also note that it may be difficult to collect a sufficient amount of whole blood at the point of injury when treating critically wounded patients or multiple casualties. So this study confirmed the statistical significance for the plausibility of using airdrop to deliver whole blood to combat medics treating casualties in a pre-hospital setting when FDA-approved cold-stored blood products are not available. The methods they used was 48 units of whole blood that were collected and then loaded into standard blood coolers, which were airdropped from fixed-wing aircraft under standard airdrop training bundle parachute or 68-inch pilot chute. 24 of these units were dropped from a C-145, 24 units were dropped from a C-130, and their control group of 15 units were stored in the blood cooler, which was not dropped. 
baseline and post-intervention labs were measured for both cohorts that included a CBC, a PT, PTT, pH, lactate, potassium, bilirubin, glucose, fibrinogen, lactate dehydrogenase, and actually peripheral blood smears. In their results section, they note that the blood cooler and cooler packs did not sustain any major damage during the airdrop. They did note that one bag out of the 48 was slightly damaged and was not sampled. Perhaps more or equally important, they did not have any evidence of hemolysis within any of the sampled units. The sampled units met all parameters for being eligible for transfusion by the JTS Whole Blood Clinical Practice Guidelines as well as the guidelines from the Association for the Advancement of Blood and Biotherapies Circular on information for the use of human blood and blood components. The author's conclusion noted that airdrop of fresh or stored whole blood in a blood cooler with a chute is a viable way of delivering blood products to combat medics treating hemorrhaging patients in the pre-hospital setting. This study also demonstrated the portability of this technique from multiple aircraft platforms. The techniques evaluated in the study have the potential for utilization in other austere settings such as wilderness medicine or humanitarian disasters where there could be an acute need for whole blood delivery when airdrop is the only option. So Josh, we've talked about this study quite a bit. Uh, you and I both read through the very long manuscript, which we encourage our readers to do as well. And though I think you and I probably consider this to be a well-done study, we ought to objectively analyze this as we encourage all of our medics and readers to do by using an objective scale. So which one are we going to be using today? Well, Alex, as always, we'll be using the University of Oxford's Center for Evidence-Based Medicine Critical Appraisal of Prognostic Studies, which you can find on their website. So Alex, the first question, was the defined representative sample of specimens assembled at an early point in their collection? Uh, you and I definitely had a question about this in terms of heterogeneity of the age of specimens that we are going to ask the author here in a few minutes. Was the patient follow-up sufficiently long and complete? Yes. Were outcome criteria either objective or applied in a blind fashion? Yeah, absolutely. They used uh, the JTS as well as the AABB criteria, which was very appropriate as a metric. If subgroups with different prognosis were identified, did adjustment for important prognostic factors take place? I think that's not applicable. Yeah, Alex, I think you've already identified my only concern with this paper. I actually think it, again, was very well written. The statistical analysis was very well done. Uh, it's an important question that needs to be answered and, and codified in the literature. I just, I was really concerned when I read that the C-145 blood was 18 days old and the C-130 blood was a day old when they dropped it. And, and I don't know why they mixed it. I'm sure the authors have a have a reason for it and we'll hear about it here in a little bit all right and 
we've actually got the privilege of um, asking some of our questions about this manuscript with some of the authors, and that is Colonel Mitchell and Lieutenant Colonel Fuentes. Welcome to the show, ma'am and sir. Really a privilege and a pleasure to uh, have your time and insight, and um, I just love the background story for this. Maybe you guys could give us a little bit of insight and history from yourselves about what prompted the study and um, how it came about from your military career. Uh, awesome. Um, all right, so a little bit of background. So this is uh, Colonel Fuentes. Myself, I'm a flight surgeon and family doc by trade. Been uh, stationed at uh, Nellis, D.C., England, and currently in Korea, Chief of Aerospace Medicine. Um, so you asked about the background on how this um, study came about. So basically, what's really neat about Operation Blood Rain was that it was operator driven and operator developed. So we had uh, Major Robert Tong. He was one of our uh, CAAs, Combat Aviation Advisor Flight Surgeons uh, with AFSOC. And, um, you know, just a lot of ideas around the fire, just talking and just with the nature of where we are going with our uh, missions, smaller footprints, uh, smaller units out in the field, and just how we're moving away from that golden hour more toward prolonged field care. And the scenario came up, they were saying like, you know, what if we were in a situation where we needed, you know, blood, we have a lot of protocols in place, like um, Rolo, Solo, a lot of walking blood bank type situations. But how do we get that blood from those to the point of injury, right? So he is very fortunate to come up to Colonel Mitchell and um, ask for some guidance on how to get this done, right? Because uh, AFSOC, you know, just get it done. But um, we wanted to make sure that it helped them out, get them some resources, make it publishable, um, get it through the IRB, get them some lab help and uh, get some some uh, assistance along the way. So that's how we got involved. So, yeah, as Connie Anthony Mitchell, I'm currently the um, aerospace medicine uh, consultant to the Air Force Surgeon General. Um, before that, I was a uh, medical group commander out in Korea and Kunsan. And I think before that, and it sort of uh, before that, I was the. Chief of Aerospace Medicine for Air Force Special Operations Command. Also before that, um, doing uh, uh, was a squadron commander um, at Eglin. So the prior experience uh, throughout my career, based I mean, my background is emergency medicine and critical care, and residency in aerospace medicine. And so when this got brought up uh, by Major Tong, obviously kind of one of those things where you know uh, was like, that's my jam, right? So the idea that operationally we would have something like whole blood and then figuring out a way to get it to a unit or personnel when we do not have air superiority and we're in an environment that is uh, resource constrained is absolutely the types of questions that we need to be answering in operational medicine. I think part of uh, my interest is, is showing that leadership support uh, can help go a long way to getting this data that has been peer reviewed and looked at basically into the literature and then have others build upon it. Um, but it is an inherently an operational question that was brought to us uh, that offered the opportunity for an answer. Yeah, thank you so much for that background because the Air Force just continues to do an outstanding job of resourcing these great projects that are operator-driven from the ground up. And I encourage all Air Force Special Operations personnel to reach out through your leadership with good ideas because you do have the resources out there to answer these in a structured clinical question, which is just so wonderful to see. With that background covered, maybe we could get into a couple of questions that we had for you, the authors, after reading through your manuscript. 
Our first question for you was, would you consider completing another study looking at a longer usage time frame from drop to use of maybe one week? All right, so that's, that's actually a great question. We are not looking at doing a re repeat study at this time as the team is currently geographically scattered due to PCS deployments, you know, just military life. Um, and additionally, the intent of Operation Blood Rain was to look at airdrop delivery from point of collection of whole blood to point of injury for immediate use for massive trauma, hemorrhage patients in a prolonged field care type of situation, which I think the study met the intent. There is definitely um, plenty of other avenues that can be explored with this type of delivery system. And like Colonel Mitchell said, we hope by publishing our data, this will help provide some groundwork for, you know, further life-saving studies. So short answer, not at this time, but definitely... Um, I think the groundwork is there for further further look. And that's such a great reminder that research really becomes a spectrum. And so you guys have created not only some original research data sets to analyze, but you've also set the groundwork for future studies, which is a really good reminder. And our, our next question after reading through the manuscript was, since each aircraft had its own cohorts of blood units dropped, why is there only one value for your time zero and time plus four in the no airdrop control arm? We did see from other editors that were reviewing this manuscript initially, each drop cohort should be compared with its own control, given that there were different collection times and handling, and therefore perhaps different baseline values in the collector pool. Absolutely. That's a completely valid question. Unfortunately, there were many operational limitations. Uh, this idea, like we mentioned before, totally homegrown, originally from operators, just really a bunch of, of volunteers who just wanted to see if this was an idea that was feasible and that could save lives. Um, and really, this team was made of a small group of invested individuals to see what we could do to get more options, just getting the blood out there, saving lives. There was no professional research team. We didn't really have funding. And both part one and part two of um, Operation Blood Rain actually occurred over the various members' deployments, moves, and conduct with minimal support in addition to like all of the members' primary medical or aircrew duties. I will say we were very fortunate to get some support from our local commands in regards to some supplies, lab support, and airtime. But a lot of this work was done late at night after hours and as add-on to the primary flight flying mission. Um, for example, the team members, they were drawing blood, in some cases actually donating the blood, coordinating the airdrops, and collecting the post-drop bundles in the drop zone, driving to the lab, sometimes after midnight, assisting with the processing, crunching the numbers, etc. So I agree, absolutely. In an ideal world, there have been more control of the sample numbers and the timeline, but just you know, real-world conditions and then the main operational mission dictated a lot of our uh, limitations. Well, that's, that's fair. And of course, as we know well, there are no research studies that are without limitations, and those certainly seem like reasonable ones. Thanks for expanding on that. Uh, we also wanted to ask uh, why you did not distribute the variously aged blood across the various experimental groups. We wondered if this wouldn't provide a better homogeneous sample set. So I think we already addressed some of the operational limitations in the previous question, um, and that's kind of the, the beauty and the difficulty of doing operational research. As can be observed, we did have significant variance in the baseline values of the whole blood based on time of storage versus the use of fresh whole blood. And this may have had potential as a confounding factor, but um, at the same time, it could be useful as a mimic of real-world conditions. 
where airdrop would be used. And that could include the use of either stored whole blood or fresh whole blood. Um, and it mentioned some of the other protocols that would fall into that, like the Ranger Olo Titer protocol, the Air Force Special Operations Command, um, Special Operations Low, Low Titer or Solo mm. protocol, or the Low Titer um, O whole blood protocol. I mean, it's still in the end, though, I think we think that the outcome still demonstrated the safety of the airdrop blood and met all the criteria that we put, you know, the 14 different criteria for blood transfusion per uh, the guidelines as outlined by the Joint Trauma System Whole Blood Transfusion Clinical Practice Guideline and AABB use of human blood and blood components. So absolutely, definitely could have had some improvement in uh, standardization of the uh, data sets. But um, I think for what we were working with, I think we were able to still show it, it was safe to use and uh it could potentially also just kind of mimic how things would happen in real life, right? Yeah, that's a, a good reminder that research doesn't necessarily mimic the real world. And in looking at how your data set compares to the existing body of literature, I would imagine that you looked at a lot of the efforts in Africa for drone and shoot-based delivery of blood products. How does your data compare to theirs? Uh, so there, there was some uh, fantastic work being done in Africa in regards to unmanned uh, aerial vehicles uh, for delivery of blood products. Uh, the time of the very first study, again, this was more just kind of, you know, duct tape and bubble gum, right? Uh, there was not too much data available on our literature search. And that also sort of is what sort of helped us to sort of push forward to try to get something out into the literature. But since that time, the data in the system has grown exponentially uh, from a review of the literature. There's some limitations when you start talking about uh, some of the efforts in, in capacity, with averaging with most of them averaging two units of blood, which may not be sufficient, uh, massive hemorrhage trauma cases, you know, and or in prolonged field care. With our study, each combat medical box evac cooler controlled with four units, so it's double the size of some of these previous studies, with multiple coolers dropped per flight as needed. Also, um, the beauty of this study was the utilization of more than one type of military aircraft. Uh, and so some of that was driven by operational <laughs> considerations and limitations and also another sort of question that was brewing uh, as a group talked about this. So in this case, we added the C-145 and the C-130 with different drop profiles. Uh, they also have uh, different load and packing profiles as well. This demonstrated the portability of this life-saving procedure and hopefully increased the operational flexibility to potentially use any other aircraft of opportunity should the need arise. So unmanned aerial vehicles uh, use similar drop procedures, uh, maybe in the future as well, but this study, study at least shows that the airdrop delivery blood does not need to be limited to a specialized unit or type of delivery mode, rather can be done from anywhere in the world, can, can be collected and delivered to the point of injury by whatever means is available. And our last question for you is that uh, given that there's an ever-increasing amount of attention paid to the wrist of MassCal for both our blue water sailors as well as what you mentioned previously, those uh, assets, whether they be maritime or aviation-based within the very large Indo-PACOM, is this land-based delivery data set applicable to delivery at sea? Interesting question. I mean, right now, there's no no limit to the portability of this delivery system. And uh, rather, possible limitations will be related to the ability and familiarity of the delivery aircraft with airdrop procedures at sea, right? Uh, so we're currently working on uh, with the appropriate Air Force and Army agencies for the needed TO updates for this study. Uh, similar, they can also be said, you know, we can get TO updates for information for Navy and compare those procedures. Uh, similar updates and training may be required for delivery systems at sea. 
Dr. Mel uh, did do a study on packed red blood cells rather than whole blood we used with clotting factors where they performed static 5.5 meter drops into the sea with one hour immersion to stimulate the stress of descent under parachute into the water. Uh, the results showed the blood bags and the red blood cells remained intact without signs of hemolysis, maintaining quality for up to 35 days, which is the approved time for safe storage of blood products and cold storage. Uh, so definitely a, a great question in the type of thing we're, uh, we're hoping other folks will look into and add the element of different environments to it. Well, again, Colonel Mitchell, Lieutenant Colonel Fuentes, this is just such an exciting um, research data set that to see that you guys took from your boots on the ground subject matter experts with this important topic, which is austere blood use, and you were able to assist those special operations medical personnel in creating a publishable data set. Um, I hope that this creates excitement for um, some additional folks to do perhaps some follow-on studies and, and maybe even participate in future endeavors. Do you, sir, have any particular lines of effort that you're specifically hoping this research project will stimulate? And do you have any recommendations for a, a point of contact if there are those in AFSOF that would like to participate with future research? So um, I'll answer the second question first. So obviously uh, they can uh, contact any of the authors, Lieutenant Colonel Fuentes or myself, and, and we will get them in touch with uh, folks at uh, AFSOC. They can always contact the AFSOC Chief of Aerospace Medicine, uh, Colonel Eric Chumley, uh, who can get them into their uh, to their research arm? Uh, I think to answer your first question, it's it's along the lines of these of some of the la some of the questions that were asked uh, today, right? I, I'm hopeful uh, that folks will look at uh, different airframes and evaluation of different conditions. Uh, so it'll be the first sort of uh, thing, and to sort of build a data set so that there is room to to for operational flexibility. So we can say yes, this has been looked at rotary aircraft. This has been looked at potentially with uh, unmanned aerial vehicles. This has been looked at uh, whether it's dropped in the sea. You, you understand our environment did, does not include uh, cold weather in, in answering these questions and sort of saying that we've subjected this whole blood um, or these containers into in different environments, different drop profiles, different airframes uh, into different environments. And that will, over time, build a, a database uh, that... Um, can be used uh, across the different uh, uh, arenas we might be involved in. The second part of that, I think, hopefully, is to show uh, to folks that operational medicine and operational research medicine, um, and this is probably get a little bit more towards my Air Force folks, but just in general, can be done uh, with the right kind of support and the right team to take an, a legit operational question, which this was, and just encouraging everyone is out there you know, is it safe? Is it reasonable? Is it worth the risk? And then doing the research to answer that question. Yes, it's safe. Yes, it's definitely reasonable. And, and it's worth the, you know, worth worth the risk, particularly if you're talking about UAV or dropping blood from different profiles. So hopefully uh, those, you know, engender some thoughts in people and helps them to, to think more broadly about this particular project, but about operational research in general about what is uh, possible and what can be achieved. And I'm going to piggyback on uh, Colonel Mitchell. Just I think the next step for this project in particular, and you know, they're updating the TOs, but just hoping you know because that's the that was the original intent of the of the operators, right? Like 
not so much the research, but just, you know, hoping that we can prove it's safe and this is something that we can put into action and make it a make it a reality sooner rather than later, right? So we can start, you know, implementing that and saving lives. So that's the hope um, that, uh, you know, make sure we have the data, make sure, um, you know, it makes it into some of the standard operating procedures and uh, becomes an option for our, our operators out there. Well, sir, ma'am, thank you so much for your time and insight today. Uh, thank you also for the ongoing support you give to our special operations personnel. And most importantly, uh, from the Journal of Special Operations Medicine, I would very much like to thank you for investing a significant amount of time and effort in helping from a strategic level provide uh, oversight and assistance to our boots on the ground special operations medics to create this absolutely outstanding publishable original research data set that directly affects the care they provide to our injured service members on the ground awesome thank you for having us again thank you for um supporting us and getting and getting that data out there thank you very much glad to be here This edition, we'd love to leave all of you out there with a call to arms from retiring Colonel Zarnik, who has just been a tremendous leader within our community and needs no introduction. If I have had any success in my 34 years of uniform service, it is because of the tremendous education and mentoring I've received from conventional and soft medics. I believe in your indistinguishable fire and your indomitable spirit. However, it is now our time to focus on instilling this in the next generation. We must focus on generating our replacement bench. We must instill a sense of purpose greater than the individual in the new medics. We must convince them that every training opportunity will equate to a life saved, and it might be theirs. It is not enough for us to work towards new programs and new levels of training. First and foremost, we must inspire them. Are you up to the task? Do you have the courage to assume career risk? Are you really willing to take the hard jobs that invest in the organization rather than self? If so, I want you to hook up, sound off, and let's get ready to go weapons free as we invigorate the medic training and sustainment revolution. We will trample those of weak commitment and hurdle the dead concepts of old. The insurgency of creative medicine, regardless of environment, will and must prevail. Trust me, there is no such thing as a bad medical training environment. There is only an unwillingness to adapt it toward our needs. We must and will work by, with, and through every organization to continue to evoke a love of medicine in our most powerful weapon systems, our medics. This is Sofia Rodriguez, Director of Marketing and Social Media Communications for the JSOM. 
I want to encourage our listeners to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at JSOM Online, and to sign up to receive our free e-newsletter on our website at jsomonline.org. We love hearing from our subscribers and followers and welcome your feedback and suggestions. Thank you.